Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for providing it for us. Thank you for sustaining, preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it today. And Father, we come to this passage. We come dependent upon you. Faith in you and your Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us, train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. God, work in us your word. By your spirit, lead us to live for you. And I pray for the people that you will comfort them. Lord, that they would know of your great faithfulness and your great love toward them. Father, help me, your servant, protect me from here. May the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are my rock, you are my redeemer. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have heard of pastor and author John Piper. Uh, John Piper once posed this question to his congregation. Here's the question. If you could have heaven with all of your family and friends if you could be reunited with your loved ones, have all the food you loved and none of the pounds, see beautiful sunsets, and have golf, beaches, mountains, fishing, or whatever thing you're into. But Jesus wasn't there. Is it still heaven? Would you still want to go? That is his question. How about you? Would you still want to go there? To have all that? There to be no Jesus. Would you still want to go there? I, I recognize the question is somewhat unfair. For after all, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God, and you cannot separate all those good things from the God who gives them. So though the question's a bit unfair, it's still a very informative question, is it not? It probably cuts all of us in some way, if we're honest. It forces up us to face up to a pretty core reality. It forces us to wonder, what am I really interested in? Do I want God 
Or do I just want his gifts? Would I be happy with a, a heaven with all those delights, but where Jesus wasn't there? Would I be happy to go to the promised land whether God would go with me or not? The sad and convicting truth is that many, perhaps many of us, would prefer the promises of God without the burden of a relationship with God. If God were to offer all his promises without the demands of a relationship, and listen, relationships do have demands. Many of us, if we had such an offer, we would gladly say, sign me up. A relationship takes time, and God will certainly ask things of me. I don't want all that. If I could get all his promises, if I could get all of his blessings, if I could get eternal life in heaven without the demands of a relationship, that sounds perfect. Many could say that perhaps many of us. But the reality that we're faced with this morning, the very same reality that the people of Israel were faced with here in our passage, is that we cannot, listen, we will not experience the fullness of God's promises to us. We will not experience the fullness of God's blessings for us without His very presence with us. Last week, we looked at chapter 32. And what did we see? The exceeding sinfulness of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of the sin of Israel. And their what? What did they do? They worshipped the golden calf. broke all of God's commandments. What else did we see, though? We saw the, the faithful mediation of Moses on their behalf. How beautiful was that? And look, we were able to end the sermon with a forward look. We got to see the merciful work of Jesus Christ for us, the true and better Moses. But the people in the text, the people here still in chapter 33, the people here, Moses, the people of Israel, they were left in a state of limbo. The covenant had been broken, remember? The Lord had punished them. 3,000 died that day. God had relented from completely cutting them off, but we ended chapter 32 with a plague came upon the people. Surely they're going, what comes next? What comes next? What does their future hold? What will become of the people of Israel? The answer comes right here in chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. What God says there at the beginning, and look what it's called in verse 4. A disastrous word. Very descriptive. And so I'll use that as our first point for this morning. If you're taking notes, that's our first of two points this morning. A disastrous word. So what is this disastrous word? If you look again at verse 1, the Lord instructs the people to leave, to go. Leave Sinai and go to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Then notice in verse 2, you may have overlooked this. God says he will send an angel. You remember before? He said, I was going to send my angel. My presence will go with you. Now it's not my angel. It's an angel. God will send an angel before the people. This is a precursor. That is, that is just the beginning of the hammer drop that comes next. Look at verse 3. I will not go up among you. I mean, that's a gut punch. You should feel that to the core. I will not go among you. It says if God is saying, I'll let you go to Canaan. I'll even drive out the people before you, but I will not be with you. You must go without me. You are a sinful, stiff-necked people. I am holy and righteous. If I go with you, I'll consume you. If I go with you, you will die. That is a disastrous word. That is traumatic. And how do the people respond to it? How do they respond? Look at verse 4. It says that they mourned. They're filled with overwhelming grief and sadness. Remember at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God is saying, I hear you, my people. I hear you. I'll be with you. I will come. I will deliver you. I will rescue you. I will bring you out. I will be with you. And he was with them. He was with them by day and by night. His angel was with them. He provided manna for them. Every morning he provided them meat when they were hungry and water when they were thirsty. He was always there. And now he's saying, I'm not going to go with you. And so they Filled with grief and sadness. They even go so far as to strip off their ornaments, it says. This is likely a reference to the jewelry and the other ordainments that they covered themselves with when they left Egypt. All the clothes they took from their neighbors and various chains and earrings and rings, at least what was left. Remember how much of it was given to make this calf. This kind of reminds me of a good friend of mine. His name is Melvin Young. Melvin grew up in New Orleans, and he became a refugee when Hurricane Katrina struck there in 2005. He got put on an airplane, didn't know where he was going, and he got moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. And eventually, the Lord saved Melvin and planted him in our church family there, where I was a pastor. Melvin loved to share with us one of his joys about living in New Orleans. Melvin loved marching in all those parades. And they're not just in February, people. They are all year long. In fact, when we had a church talent show, we always knew what the closing act was. It was Melvin. Melvin would put on his spiffiest clothes. He would have these feather boas that were really big and long. He'd have these big banners. And we would put on jazz music. And Melvin would dance. And he would sing. And we would all just be happy with him. Because he was full of joy with all these ordainments that he was wearing. We love Melvin. I miss that. Maybe I can ask him to come up here. One of our fellowship meals, he can pray for us. I love seeing him in his joy. I had to what it was like for the people of Israel leaving right? Egypt in their joy with all this stuff. Because that's what you do when you're celebrating. You adorn yourself in celebration. When one receives a disastrous word, you do that. When you get some 
really hard news. The dormant's gone. The dancing ceases. The hurricane of grief washes all of that away, right? And all that's left is what we see throughout the Old Testament put on your sackcloth and ashes, right? Symbols of grief and mourning. This is a response of the people. And it's a fitting response. It ties back to how they began. You see, they're still going to get Canaan. They're still going to be that nation. They'll still be a great nation. But they wouldn't have God. They wouldn't have God's presence with them. That's disastrous and devastating. This news surely sunk in with Moses. He understood what was happening. Verses 7 through 11. It's kind of an interjection here. Might seem out of place as you're reading the chapter, but verses 7 through 11 function to give us some historical background about the tent of meeting so we would understand the tent of meeting. Understand that this tent was not the tabernacle. The tabernacle hasn't been erected yet. This is the tent of meeting. This is a different tent where the tabernacle would be inside the camp. The tent of meeting is outside the camp. Right? It was a tent constructed by Moses, and it's taken outside. He goes out there, and he's seeking an answer from God. So with that context in mind, we now find Moses in verse 12 going there to plead with God to be an intercessor again, to be a mediator based on that word. Look with me again. Let's go to verse 12. Chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me not your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses is once again a faithful mediator. Notice how he pleads with God, much as he did in the last chapter. We talked about this last week. He pleads with God on the basis of God's character, God's power, God's promises. And to summarize it, he, we could say that he says, God, you've asked me to do this, but how can I do it on my own? How will you send me there? Who will you send with me? How will I fulfill your promises to these people on my own? That's what he's asking. And notice God's gracious response there in verse 14. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And immediately you're like, whoosh, whoosh, right? Like, okay, okay. God is faithful. He's going to go. Case closed. Let's get moving. But it's not settled. I mean, did you hear what I read? Moses kind of is acting like your typical husband who hears his wife and he doesn't listen. If you know, you know. Come on. Right. Yeah, I heard you, honey. You said, uh, what was that again? 
like, but, but, but you have to go with me. Look at verse 15. God just says, my presence will go with you. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Again, didn't God just say he's going to go with him? Well, the key to understanding this lies in what is not exactly obvious, perhaps. Uh, the you in verse 14, if you were to look at the original language, is singular. It's not plural. It's singular. So God says, I'll go with you, Moses. I'll go with you. Moses, I'll go with you. But what Moses is pleading for is God's presence to go with us, right? He wants the plural. He wants to hear God say, my presence will go with y'all. My presence will go with the ends. What are the other ones? Each and every one of you. He wants to hear the plural. Moses knows that Israel will not, that Israel cannot experience the fullness of God's promise to them and God's blessing for them if his presence is not there. So he pleads with the Lord to go with them. And how does the Lord respond? Look again at verse 17. This very thing that you have spoken of. I mean, that's a hallelujah moment. That's the opposite of the gut punch, right? That's like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So if your phone's sitting there, hold it up. Praise the Lord. He'll go with them. God will. As we see in chapter 34, God will renew his covenant with the people. And God will be present with them. This disastrous word has been overturned by a word of promise. God promises he will go with you. And this word of promise brings us to our second and final point. A daring request. A daring request. You can see Moses' daring request right here in chapter 33, verse 18. Moses responds, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. All right, that's up. I've got a long quote for you. Just know. These aren't my words. It's not so long as I can get the rest of the time, but it's longer than I usually do. And as soon as I say who said it, you're like, oh yeah, that's why. Charles Spurgeon. Prince of Preachers, right? That great English preacher. He preached on this verse for like an hour and a half. Okay. Listen to what he says. He says, this is a large request for Moses to make. He could not have asked for more. Why? It is the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. It seems to me the greatest stretch of faith that I have either heard or read of. It was great faith which made Abraham go into the plain to offer up intercession for a guilty city like Sodom. It was vast faith, which enabled Jacob to grasp the angel. It was mighty faith, which made Elijah rend the heavens and fetch down rain from the skies. But it appears to me that this prayer contains a greater amount of faith than all the others put together. He continues. It is the greatest request that man could make to God. 
Had he requested a fiery chariot to whirl him up to heaven? Had he asked to cleave the water floods and drown the chivalry of a nation? Had he prayed the Almighty to send fire from heaven to consume whole armies? A parallel to this prayer might possibly have been found. But when he offers this petition, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He stands alone, a giant among giants, a colossus even in those days of mighty men, amongst the lofty peaks and summits of man's prayers that rise like mountains to the skies. This is the culminating point. This is the highest elevation that faith ever gained. It is the loftiest place to which the great ambition of faith could climb. Hands. It is the topmost pillar of all the towering structures that confidence in God ever piled up. Wow. Wow. I know that was a lengthy quote. There's no way I could have said that. So why not? Let him speak even here. I mean, here we have Moses, right? Moses is being given exactly what he asked for. Lord, I need you to go with us. Lord, go with us. He's so overwhelmed. Oh, that we would be so overwhelmed, God answers so clearly. He's so overwhelmed that he just keeps going. He just keeps asking, doesn't he? And you hear that request, and, and, and you know, honestly, as I'm studying this, I have to think, but hasn't Moses already seen God's glory? Did he not see it at the burning bush? Did he not see it with those 70 elders there at Sinai? Did he not see it when he was there on the mountaintop? Did he not see it in a tent of meeting when the cloud rested? Did he not see it through all the miracles that God had performed? Had he not seen enough? No. The answer is no. Not even close. Did anyone ever really have enough? No. Not even close. Moses has had a taste of it. And now he longs for even more. He wants to see the Lord in all of his glory. He wants to see the fullness of God's glory. God has responded. God has shown his grace. And he says, I want more. We have little faith. Notice God's response to this daring request. Yes and no. Parents can understand. Yes and no. God would show Moses a glimpse of his glory, but he's not going to show it to him in all its fullness. Why? Because Moses would die. Moses would surely die. You can see this answer for yourself. Look at verses 19 through 23. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God protects Moses from God. 
I want you to turn over then and find the fulfillment of this in chapter 34. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Once Moses goes back up to the top of the mountain, tablets are written. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And Lord, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And God renews the people. Some commentators have written at great length to contend that verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34 that we just read are some of the most important words in all of Scripture. I think that might be overstating it a bit. But you cannot help but see here how the Lord shows His glory to Moses, not only in what He sees, but in what He hears. Preaches His sermon, essentially. Tells Moses, reminds him who he is. And there's some very important truths there. Truths that, that the people of Israel need to know and be reminded of. Truths that carry on through the scriptures. That, that these verses are quoted over and over again in the Psalms. Of course, throughout the rest of the first five books and even into the New Testament. These are important things. It carries on even to today for us. I mean, think about it. God is indeed merciful, is he not? God is merciful to all those who are in need. God is indeed gracious to all those who fall short of his glory. God is indeed slow to anger to all those who are rebellious. He indeed abounds in steadfast love for those who are unfaithful. God indeed forgives those who are guilty, does he not? And he is most certainly just toward those who remain unrepentant. This is a proclamation of glorious grace and glorious truth. And there's really only one way to respond. And that's exactly how Moses responds. He worships. Moses bows his head and he worships and he prays. He prays. He's already had the answer to his prayer, but yet he says it again, Lord, be with us. He's desperate for God's presence. He's even gotten this glimpse of the glory of God again. And he wants more. God be with us. You ever think about that? How many times do you tell someone, I'm going to pray that the Lord will be with you? And you might go, thanks. Might as well give me your thoughts and prayers. No. It's one of the best things you can say to someone. The Lord be with you. I'll pray for the Lord to be with you.
for the people of Israel. That response is detailed in the rest of chapter 34 and on through the end of the book in chapter 40, and it's something that we'll look at in great detail next week as we close this series. But for now, for this morning, we see Moses making a, a daring request, right? It's a God-honoring request. For God indeed delights to show his glory to his people. God delights to show his glory to those who know and embrace the truth that their highest purpose in this life is to what? To reflect God's glory. Isn't that what we say, even in our own catechism, what is the primary purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So when somebody can learn it out. This morning, brothers and sisters, we've been confronted with a disastrous word and a daring request. And as I walk through both, I hope that you not only find encouragement in who God has revealed Himself to be, but I also hope that you can see clearly how you can respond I began this morning by pointing out how we often live. How we often live as though we prefer the promises of God without the burden of a relationship with Him. As you've seen already, this is not how it works. We simply cannot. I say it, we certainly will not. Experience the fullness of God's promises to us, His blessings for us without His very presence with us. And that remained true from this point even to today. So true it was that God Himself, second person of the Trinity, the one and only eternal Son, Jesus Christ, He left the glories of heaven to do what? To dwell with us. To show us his very glory in all its fullness. This is what John says. We have to his glory. To show himself. To show his very glory. To be our Emmanuel, our God with us. I'm reminded how Jesus' disciples responded to him. Think back to John chapter 14. Jesus tells them, I'm going to be leaving you. And I'm going to return to heaven. How did they respond? We can do it our way. No. They're grieved. It's a disastrous word to them. What do you mean you're going to leave? How did Jesus respond? Well, he responded in many ways. Don't miss the one that connects best with this passage. He promised to leave his presence with them. He would send his Holy Spirit to dwell within them, to lead and guide them into all truth, to sustain them in this world and to prepare them for heaven. And friends, this is certainly true today for you, for me, for those who are in Christ, for those of us who have believed in Jesus by faith. We have his very presence with us. He will most certainly lead us to his promised land of heaven. He will faithfully bring us there by his power according to his promise. And he'll never leave us nor forsake us until that day. So let us just not be reminded of his presence. We know it's there. Let us desperately yearn for it. And some of you are walking through such hard trials and tribulations. You know God is there, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? Somebody comes along and says, well, God is there. And you're like, 
weak. We can't grab hold of all these truths perfectly in our own thinking. So we must do what's been laid out for us in Scripture. Lord, I need you. I need to know you're here with me. And if you're in Christ, guess what his answer is?